0: Greetings again, everyone. I wish I could prove that you and I are here on the wrong day. And if I could do so, I would want to go to the most eminent authorities from the library shelves of the big universities and the major cities. I would want to go to the Catholic Encyclopedia, to the Jameson Fawcett and Brown Commentary, to Adam Clark, to the historians, to research and to find proof that would satisfy me that what my father went through before I was born, when my mother had taken up with what he called fanaticism and began to keep Saturday for Sunday, was a bunch of hogwash, and that, in fact, we are out of step with 99.9 percent of the rest of the so-called Christian world, the Sunday-keeping world, and could revise our doctrine and remove that obstacle to all of these millions of people out there that I believe would come pouring into God's true Church because of the message that we have, the knowledge of prophecy, the gospel, so much of the truth of the Bible. Don't you wish we could prove that Sunday is the day on which we ought to worship? When you really think about it, not that I want to get in an attitude of rebellion against God, but wouldn't it be easier just to remove that terrible obnoxious Jewishness from what we believe. Because it really is kind of an oddball idea. I mean, I've got a lot of friends and neighbors out at Emerald Bay. They asked me to speak over there about three weeks ago, and, of course, I went over there and spoke to them on a Sunday. Spoke to that little Emerald Bay church that meets down in there. Are two of them there, one's in the clubhouse and the other's in the church, and I met with the one in the clubhouse. Well, I had never seen... In all of my years uh, as a young boy, the exact format that they used, they used the military service. And I didn't bother going to church when I was in the military except when I was on leave or maybe wander into a Catholic church in San Francisco or the Methodist church in Pasadena because that was where to meet some girls. They'd invite you down to the basement afterward for cookies, and they had refreshments just like we do. And the deacon would invariably see some swab jockey walking there in his uniform and put you right down in the middle of all the teenagers. So that was a way to do it. but. This was a service that I had never experienced before. They all knew exactly what to do and say. They had what they called a call to worship. And the gentleman stood there and read a lot of things. It was a call to worship. And then they began, and you know, I had thought I was going to take my brand new book about the answer to Unanswered Prayer that goes through the sixth chapter of the book of Matthew and shows that the Lord's Prayer, so-called, is in a context surrounded by verses which tell you... Do not do your prayers and your alms in public that the heathen and the pagans, as well as the Pharisees and all the others, love to do their religious overt acts out in public where they can be seen, and they think they shall be heard for their oft-speaking and their public prayers. But Christ said, I tell you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, enter into your closet and pray in thus in such a fashion, and the entire context says, Don't use vain repetition. And, of course, the point of the book is that the very context in which Jesus says, Don't use vain repetition, but here's an outline. When you pray, say, Our Father, with all that that means. And then pray to God in a very personal way. And instead, the world has appropriated the outline and endlessly repeats it. And here I am waiting to speak. And they go right on through their call of worship. Now we will recite the Lord's Prayer. I'm sitting there wondering, what do I do now? And they're all going, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's just, you know, routine. Weren't are through that. I decided to preach on something very simple, the entire purpose of human life, and waded through the eighth chapter of the book of Romans about being born of God. And I had a lot of commentary on it. A lot of people uh, told me they really did enjoy that, and I think that they were sincere in that what was kind of funny was that they took up a collection, and of course I dipped down and gave them some money in the basket. It was all cash, and here's this little wicker basket just filled with money. And they just got this folding table, and they bring the wicker basket, and they place it right in front of this little speaker stand. And the entire time I'm standing there speaking, here's this filthy lucre sitting there in front of my speaking stand, all these crumpled fives and tens and ones. I made a very big, obvious gesture of telling the gentleman who read the call to prayer, who was a retired general, uh, no, I have never accepted a dime for speaking, and I never will. You use this for whatever purpose you would like. But it did make me feel a little funny. It's like everybody's sitting there, yeah, well, there he is. I'm paying him to say, oh, hurry up and get it over with, you know, I'm wanting to get in a golf course. But those thoughts do cross your mind. You know, I've met a lot of my neighbors would would be here if we could lease this church tomorrow, the thoughts crossed my mind. I wish I could find a way to tell you that we don't need to be here today. We ought to come back tomorrow. When Mrs. Runcorn began to tell my mom that there was a reason why she kept Saturday for Sunday, she had her turn to Genesis, the second chapter, and the first verse. And without commentary, she merely had my mother read where she placed her finger on the text. I'm going to do it differently and go real quickly and read just a few of these and refresh our memory about what it does say. Because of what I want to read to you from some eminent authorities in a moment. The second chapter of the book of Genesis says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, that means set it apart for a holy use or purpose, because in it he had rested from all his work which God had created and made. If we will go now to the sixteenth chapter of the book of Exodus, remembering that the twelfth chapter is when the Passover is revealed, and that actually the annual holy days were beginning to be revealed to Israel at the very same time as the weekly Sabbath and even a few days before. In the 16th chapter, you read how God is saying, I'm going to test them. He's going to rain manna from heaven. Verse 4, And the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may test or prove them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, remember, the law has not yet been given. Moses has not yet disappeared to the top of Sinai. This is the 16th chapter. The reading of the Ten Commandments does not occur until the 20th chapter. Yet he's talking about testing them whether or not they will obey his law. Well, we read about all their murmurings, and they wanted to eat flesh, and then it rained like a dew of a small round thing, verse 14, that lay on the ground like hoarfrost, and when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. If you look at the margin, it is manna, is an untranslated Hebrew word, and it merely meant what's it. So for forty years the Israelites ate what's it. Because that's what they called it. They said, what is it? They didn't know what it was, and that became the name for it. What's it? And so Moses said, this is the bread that the Eternal has given you to eat. And he was then to tell them to go out and gather twice as much on Friday. In verse 23, he said, this is that which the Eternal has said, tomorrow is the rest of the Holy Sabbath unto the Jews. Bake that which you will bake today. Did I misread that somewhere or another? Did you get there quickly enough to catch me in my little error? You're going to have to be quick because there are some subtleties in what I want to read you out of some of these authorities in a few moments that are very, very hard to catch. No, it didn't say that, did it? It said, Tomorrow is the rest of the Holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Capital letters L-O-R-D in the 1611 King James are invariably from the Y-H-B-H or the J-H-B-H that some people choose to pronounce Yahweh or Yahweh or Jehovah. And it does mean the ever-living one, the one who was and is and is to come, or the eternal. And my father always chose, and I've taken up that habit because it is actually the real meaning that I automatically, when I see the capital letters L-O-R-D, merely say the eternal because it's what it really means. The rest of the Holy Sabbath unto the eternal, not unto the Jews or the Reubenites or the Gadites or the people of any of the other tribes or any other race of human beings, but unto the eternal. Verse 25, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath unto the Eternal. Verse 26, They were to gather it for six days, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, in it there shall be none. And then in verse 28, The Eternal said to Moses, How long refuse you to keep my commandments and my laws? So, verse 30, The people rested on the seventh day. Now we read in the 20th chapter in the Decalogue, Remember, this is verse 8, that is, hark back, think about it, because from old times and more than one-sixth of all of world's history, far more than that, had transpired from that time to this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Jews. Well, at least that's the way the Catholic Encyclopedia and others tend to read it. But it says, Here it is the Sabbath of the Eternal, your God, and in it you shall not do any work. You nor your son nor your daughter, manservant, maidservant, cattle or stranger that is within your gates, for in six days the Eternal made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Eternal blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. To make short shrift of some of the Old Testament scriptures and to save a little bit of time, let me remind you that Mr. Van Stinson is in the very last portions of a very extensive, large, thoroughly researched booklet on the subject of the Sabbath. I think all of you know about Samuel E. book, which is called From Saturday to Sunday, and it shows the one as being a shadow of the other and that he was given very large accolades even by the Vatican Library itself and by Roman Catholics. And he is a Seventh-day Adventist for the very scholarly work, probably the best collection in one volume of literature that exists today on the Sabbath. For it goes through all of the old church councils, every old papal encyclical, every minute of every meeting that took place from the third century on down, where the Roman Catholic Church seeks to justify its adoption of its main sign and symbol other than the cross, the day of the sun, Sunday, which it has bequeathed like an inheritance to all of its protesting daughters, and cheerfully admits that the only authority they have Is A, the Roman Catholic Church Fathers, B, Roman Catholic Tradition, and C, the Pope in Rome. The Roman Catholic Church does not claim the Bible as its sole authority at all. And many a Catholic cleric laughs up his sleeve a little bit at the Protestants who continue to cling to Sunday and claim they can justify it solely from the Bible. The history of the Sabbath question by Cox is another major book on that subject, of which there are literally hundreds, and of course there are other publications, Sabbatarian organizations like the Sabbath Sentinel and some of the publications of The Church of God's Seventh Day. There are probably hundreds of books that one could read about the historical transition from that day to this, so it is very difficult for me to cover such a vast subject in a very brief period of time. But I want to approach it from the point of view that if we could find justification for Sunday, you would think it would be in the Catholic Encyclopedia, that it would be in some of these great sources of history. Quickly, by way of rehearsal, we're all familiar with the 31st chapter of Exodus. Take a quick look at it in passing, because this is the one in which God says, "...the only perennial sign between himself and his people," beginning in verse 12, that would identify them, like a mark, or a label, or a symbol, is his Sabbath. Speak thou to the children of Israel, saying, verse 13 of Exodus 31, Verily, my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Eternal that does sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that defiles it shall surely be put to death. It's a death penalty for breaking the Sabbath. Whosoever does any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people, and he goes on to enlarge upon it, and finally says in verse 17, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. The proofs that we present, and that will be presented in the book that we used to wade through in the college classroom, were very systematic. A. Does God exist? B. Is the Bible his word? C. Can you prove who was the creator of that sanctified, set apart, and made holy the Sabbath day. So then we launch into an extensive, absolute, documented proof that the member of Elohim, which is the word used in the first verse of Genesis 1, in the beginning God, in the beginning Elohim, a plural word meaning more than one, that the member which did the commanding, that said, Let there be light, let the dry land appear, and that said, He hallowed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Is that one that is mentioned in John the first chapter? The Word became flesh and came down and lived among us, and we beheld Him. And by Him was everything made that was made. And nothing was made that wasn't made through and by Him. The Word, or the Logos, is the Greek word, the spokesman, the member of Elohim. So, in other words, in the classroom, we prove by many, many texts, not the least of which are John the first chapter, Hebrews the first chapter, and many others that Christ of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. Not that there is not reference to the Father in the Old Testament, because there is. When you see the one who comes before the Ancient of Days in the book of Daniel, you actually see the two of them portrayed. And There are references to the God of Israel as being other than the spokesman who did the creating. That's one method of proof. Who is the Jesus Christ of the New Testament but the member of the God family? who gave the commands concerning the Sabbath, and who wrote the Decalogue with his own finger in the Old Testament. Next systematic proof. Was the law in force and effect, and to break any one of its tenets, a penalty punishable by death prior to Sinai? We took days in my class, and we waded through scriptures and put them on the board of place after place after place where even Gentile kings Pharaohs in Egypt, ancient Babylonians and others understood that the Ten Commandments of God were in force and effect. Genesis thirteen thirteen comes to mind. And the men of Sodom were sinners exceedingly before the Eternal. And Romans 4, 15, and so many other scriptures. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no stop sign, there is no policeman to give you a ticket for running it. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. If the men of Sodom were sinners exceedingly, what is sin? 1 John 3.4, sin is the transgression of the law. Therefore if they were sinners, they were breaking a law which defines sin. And there is only one law in the Bible to define sin. So there are many, many other texts all the way excluding Exodus 20. That was a part of our criteria. We could not use a single passage in the Bible from Exodus 20 on to the book of Revelation. We could only use Genesis 1 to Exodus 19. And we put scriptures on the board all over the place that refer to God's commandments and even to his statutes and his judgments. Some of them we just read. How long refuse ye to keep my commandments and my laws before the 20th chapter? Next question. Did God bless righteous kings who observed God's Sabbath and who repented of Baal worship and turned back to his annual Sabbaths? Yes. And who was that God? The one who became Christ. Everybody knows the Sabbath was kept throughout by those righteous men of old. What day did Jesus keep? Not even a Catholic that's ever been born contests the idea that Christ kept the Sabbath. Not a one of them. But is Christ the Lord of Sunday or the Lord of the Sabbath? Mark 2.27, the Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath day. The Sabbath, he said, was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So these and other systematic proofs, what day did the apostle Paul keep? What day did he teach the Gentiles to keep? What day will be kept in the millennium? Let's go to the 13th chapter of the book of Acts right quickly. Let me give you one quick example, passing over some of these others that you will read in the booklet. Paul and his company, verse 13, had loosed from Papros and came to Perga and Pamphylia. Here is Paul, the apostle to a lot of Greeks, a lot of Asians, of people who today we might call Turks, Moabites, and others in Pamphylia and Perga, and these were mostly Hellenists, people who were pagans who worshipped all sorts of pagan deities. They came to Antioch in Pisidia, verse 14. Now this is written by Luke during Paul's final Roman imprisonment, 59 to 61 A.D., prior to his death. Think of that. Thirty years after the ascension of Christ, how long has the Church of God International been in existence? 12 years this coming July 21st. Seems to some like a long time, to others like a very brief period of time. But 30 years is certainly plenty of time for a church to establish traditions, isn't it? 30 years. Pretty good slice of your life. 30 years. When you're 30, 30 more, 60. That's a pretty good slice of your life. By the time Luke, the chronologer, is writing of Paul's travels, Paul, the converted, former member of the Sanhedrin, who had every reason to reject everything Jewish because he is the apostle to the Gentiles, in a Gentile city, goes into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading the law of the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue, these were Jews, sent unto them, saying, You men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation of the people, say on. So you can read. Paul's lengthy message, although a very short sermon, about the resurrection. Verse 30, God raised him from the dead. Verse 33, in the middle of it, he raised up Jesus again. Verse 34, he raised him from the dead. Verse 37, whom God raised again. Finally, he comes to the conclusion. Verse 41, Behold you, despisers, and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days. Really referring to the resurrection of Christ and the establishment of God's church and the descent of the Holy Spirit, a work which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. And when the Jews were gone, there was a lot of visiting, a lot of questions being asked, a lot of milling around, a lot of handshaking. When the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath, those poor. Deluded Gentile didn't have the faintest idea they were talking to a Christian minister, a Christian apostle, thirty years after the ascension of Jesus Christ, and so they assumed that Paul wouldn't preach to them on a religious occasion until the following week. They didn't have the good sense to know all they needed to do was to come back tomorrow morning at ten o'clock. Paul missed a marvelous opportunity. I say tongue-in-cheek. Now, when the congregation was broken up, and many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together. Now we got an overwhelming number of Gentiles, a tiny little minority of Jews. Paul does not tell the Gentiles, oh, well, the Jews are gone. Now, we Gentiles, uh, we're observing the day that is in commemoration of the resurrection of Christ. We can just have our nice Sunday meeting tomorrow, but instead they wait a whole week. And then they come together again. The The Gentiles come to the apostle of the Gentiles to hear God's word on the Sabbath day. All right, systematic, proof by proof by proof, the apostle Paul, we all know, kept the Sabbath. The apostle Paul taught Gentiles to keep the Sabbath. Any doubt in anyone's mind? I wouldn't think so, because you can read not only that, but many, many other texts that say similarly that Paul's custom was the observance of the Sabbath day. In the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews is a part of the Bible that has been completely and, I think, deliberately obscured by the translators. It has been so obfuscated by the commentaries that I want to read a portion of it to you in a few minutes. But first, let's go through it right quickly and see exactly what is the context. Chapter four, verse one: "Let us therefore fear," says Paul, "to in this case the Hebrews, lest a promise being left of us or us us of entering into His rest." Is there any doubt in anyone's mind about what that rest is? Entering into His rest is metaphor for God's kingdom. Of course, the Protestant churches or the Catholic Church would say heaven. All right, fine, let's let it go at that, heaven. But heaven is going to be where God is, and Revelation 21 and 22 says the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and talks about the new heavens and the new earth, and the 22nd chapter of Revelation needs no interpretation, it is very clear that heavenly Jerusalem The very throne of God is seen in vision coming down out of heaven to this earth, and the throne of God and the Lamb shall both be in this earth. So yes, shocking as it may sound, we're going to get to heaven, because heaven is going to come here. And this is going to be the headquarters of all the universe, and heaven is the site of God's throne. So heaven or this earth, it really is the same thing eventually. The rest is the millennial rest that was typified by crossing over the river Jordan into the promised land. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Who is he talking about? Look at the preceding chapter, and I won't read it all, but about those whose carcasses fell, verse 17, in the wilderness, with whom he was grieved for forty years, to whom he swore, verse 18, that they should not enter into his rest. Historical footnote. You remember, don't you, of the great circumcision of all the youths who were to pass over the River Jordan on that Sabbath day prior, and it was the tenth when they singled out the Lamb, prior to entering into the Holy Land, as it became to be called, Palestine, and that the older generation had died in the wilderness. They spent most of their time after the first few weeks in a place called Kadesh Barnea. Joshua led the younger generation into the Promised Land by a short Sabbath day's journey. The river was in flood, it says very clearly in Joshua 4 and 5. The priests were told to go and stand ankle-deep in the water, and they did. They waited out and they stood there. And God, it said, caused the waters to gather up like a heap, and the flood waters that were coming down from the north just stood up in exactly the way that he had parted the Red Sea. The Israelites, and their more than three-some-odd millions, walked across that river, somewhere north of the Dead Sea, near Jericho, dry shod. The priests who went over first were each to gather an armload of twelve stones. Twelve of them gathered twelve stones. When they went on the other side, they were to put them in a heap, which they did, which it said in the book of Joshua remained until that day. It may not be there today, but it was then. So that whenever the children of that generation came by and said, What mean ye by this monument it is a monument to the day when we inherited the promised land. We walked across the river Jordan dry shod. That day, Joshua gave an oration. It is repeated by David in the 95th Psalm. Today, if you will not harden your hearts, reminding them of the hardness of the hearts of their parents, whose carcasses were now buried in the wilderness. If you will listen to his voice, we're about to inherit the land flowing with milk and honey. We're going over Jordan. It is a type of entering into God's rest. But Joshua could not give them total rest. Almost immediately we read that they were marching around the walls of Jericho and that they met a fortified city that was trying to deny them entry into the land. So that brief historical footnote now aside... You can go back and research in the fifth chapter of Joshua how that very first Passover was on a Wednesday, and that that short Sabbath day journey across the river Jordan, only maybe an eighth of a mile or so, was on a Sabbath. It's important to remember that because of the text of Hebrews 4. Now, for we, verse 3, which have believed, do enter into rest. What does that mean? Well, of course, the commentaries are going to tell you that means that we're going to inherit heaven. We do enter into rest. Actually, that's not what it means at all, although the metaphor is there. The Greek word for rest, if you want to write it down, if you don't, it doesn't matter, is kata pausis. K-A-T-A is a prefix. P-A-U-S-I-S, you will notice, and that's the singular, is... Found in the English word pause. Kata means down in place or in time, and it literally means a down sitting, a down pausing, it means a repose, it means resting, it means stopping, reposing, reclining, down sitting, resting. And that is the Greek word that is used everywhere in this chapter except in one place that we will find. Translated in the English language, rest. As I have sworn in my wrath, Shall they enter into my rest? Is really the meaning of that. The King James obscures it. If they shall enter into my rest, verse 3, should really be rendered. Are they about to enter into my rest in a negative sense? Shall I allow them to enter into my rest, meaning because of their disobedience? Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, shadowy reference to what? The Sabbath, God's rest, that his works were finished, and when he rested they were all finished, but he was not finished creating, he was just finished working. He was still creating holy time. But he was not working to do it, he was resting to do it. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. What is the context here? The seventh day. On what wise? Well, as a shadow of the rest the rest of the promised land, which is a shadow of the rest of, if you will, heaven, but actually the kingdom of God, eternal life. He spoke of the seventh day concerning this rest, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And you will see in the margin that that refers you to Genesis two two, where we just were, Exodus 20.11, where we just were, and Exodus 31.17, where we just were. All three references are given in the lineage or the... I should say, margin of my Bible. God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, shall they enter into my rest, or if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, read disobedience. Unbelief, same thing. Again, verse 7, he limiteth a certain day easy English to understand. He limits. He draws lines around. He puts in brackets. He puts in parentheses. He points out. He specifies. He points out a particular day, saying in David, today, after so long a time. And there is that beautiful call to worship in the 95th Psalm. We can turn to that and read it if you wish. It is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. That message was delivered on a Sabbath day by Joshua, as the children of Israel were ready to cross over the River Jordan into the Promised Land, is referred to by David as a call to worship, saying, don't follow the example of the elders whose bodies perished in the wilderness largely because of Sabbath-breaking, murmuring, disobedience, and so on. But now, today, on this Sabbath day, harden not your hearts. Now another mistranslation. My margin again straightens it out, and probably yours does as well. For if Jesus had given them rest... no. No, no, no. The Hebrew word that is used there is Joshua, or some prefer Yahshua, the soft pronunciation of the J. And my margin says that is Joshua, and so do all the commentaries, and so does uh, Westcott and Hort, and so does Thayer's, and so does Strong's, and so does everybody else. Say, Joshua. If Joshua had given them, that's your context, the Hebrews crossing over the River Jordan, if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day, a day that shadows, that typifies something, that portrays something. There remains therefore a rest. Now the men who did this shall bear their own guilt in the light of the last few verses of Revelation 22 that pronounces a curse upon any human being who would dare to take away from the inspired word of God, or to add to it. You can deal with this yourself if you wish. You can go get big, thick, blue, exhaustive concordance, look up the word rest in English, look at the number, look it up. It will refer you to every verse in the fourth chapter of Hebrews except verse 9 in regard to the Greek word katapausis. When you come to verse 9, it will show you a different number. And you're going to flip over about forty-some pages, way toward the end of the Greek dictionary, and find a completely different word, not beginning with a K, but beginning with an S. From the K in the alphabet to the S in the alphabet, sabbatismos, about the fourth or fifth word in Thayer's lexicon. And sabbatismos and Catapausis don't even sound alike, do they to you? They're not. They don't bear any resemblance whatsoever, except in some biblical metaphor. Catapalsis means a down-pausing, a down-stopping, lying down, reclining, resting. And sabbatismos means a Sabbath-keeping. It literally means keeping of the Sabbath, a Sabbath-keeping. Now, my my Bible here is the Philadelphia version, this very large uh, version of the King James English. Maybe you have an Oxford or a Cambridge, or maybe you have some of the new American translations or the Living Bible or something else. But the Living Bible takes very great liberties in some of its paraphrasing and could be dangerous in some cases of misunderstanding. It's not a scholarly work at all. But if you look at the original, it is there, and all of the authorities agree that this should read, there remains therefore a keeping of the Sabbath to the people of God, written by Paul. Way late in his ministry, more than 30 some years after the death of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. If we want to put the interpretation on that, that means let us labor to be a good Christian to achieve eternal life, that's fine. But also it has the secondary meaning, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Let us labor, let us be diligent to observe God's holy Sabbath day, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief or disobedience. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And then he goes on into the other subjects at hand here of the high priesthood. Let to give you an example of how some men... And this must have been written by lawyers, all I can figure out. I don't mean that in passing, that that that's difficult, but you ever try to read a a legal document that is very, very wordy to cover all the loopholes and make sure that by the time you get to fighting and go to court that it means exactly what it says? You can read, if you'd like, your own internal revenue tax return forms. Uh, You can read any legal document, you know what I'm talking about. Well, here is an article in the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews from Jameson, Fawcett and Brown, Critical Experimental Commentary, one of the very well-known and highly-placed commentaries. And I will read this portion about verse 7, when he said today, and then on to verse 9. Let me just get the one point of it here because I didn't mark it. All right. Looking at verse 7, here are their comments. new the promise recurs, Greek order, he limiteth a certain day, today. Here Paul interprets the quotation by, in the Psalm of David, saying, after so long a time, after five hundred years' possession of Canaan, and resumes it by, as it has been said before, then they have some, some references to the various codices. If you hear his voice, and so on, Alfred, quote one of their authorities, eight, answer to the possible objection of his reasoning, viz., that those that brought into Canaan by Joshua, so Jesus, Acts 7:45, did enter the rest of God. If the rest of God meant Canaan, God would not, after their entrance into that land, have spoken of another future day of entering the rest. The word, therefore, out of the Bible, because God, quote, speaks of another day, note verse eight. Then remaineth now the ones that I'm emphasizing are the words in very dark type that they pull directly out of the Bible, and the lighter type is their commentary. Remaineth out of the Bible, then their commentary, still to be realized by the some who must enter therein, verse six, i. e. the people of God, the true Israel, who enter into God's rest, in parenthesis, my rest, in quotes verse three. God's rest was a quote sabbatism, in parenthesis Greek. So also will ours be margin a home for the exile a mansion for the pilgrim, a Sabbath for the workman weary of the world's weekday toil. In time there are many Sabbaths, but then there shall be one perfect and eternal. The quote, rest, verse 8, is catapausis, Hebrew. Noah rest from weariness as the ark rested on Ararat after its tossings. Isn't that cute? Israel under Joshua rested from war in Canaan. Relaxation from afflictions, rest given by Jesus now, but the rest, verse 9, is the nobler Hebrew, Sabbath rest, literally, cessation from work finished, as God rested, the two ideas combined to give the perfect view of the heavenly Sabbath. Do you know what he said? Anybody understand what I just read? Difficult, isn't it? Convoluted, obfuscated, clouded, confusing, isn't it? It's interesting when you read some of these books trying to get at some germ of truth about the Bible, of all the various places they take you. It's it's just unbelievable. But that is what the authorities have to say. And instead of showing exactly what it means in the context, by the time you read it, you have all these nice shadowy types about the heavenly rest. He doesn't bore in on the Sabbath at all i brought with me a couple of volumes of my complete set of the Catholic Encyclopedia. Now, if we're going to find in our search that we really are here on the wrong day, we ought to be able to find it in the articles on Sabbath and Sunday in the Catholic Encyclopedia. Here's the article on Sabbath in the Catholic Encyclopedia. They say under the section Meaning of the Sabbath, the Sabbath was the con- consecration of one day of the weekly period to God as the author of the universe and of time. Notice that. Consecration of one day of the weekly period of time. They love to emphasize that it's one day out of a week. That kind of puts a little emphasis there that will be repeated time and time again in literature that you read on. This does not mean that the Sabbath was instituted at the creation, as some commentators have thought. Oh. What did we read in Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2? Now, the writer of this article is telling us the Sabbath was not instituted at creation, as some commentators have thought. Was it a commentator we read in Genesis 1? Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2? But that the Israelites were to imitate God's example and rest on the day which he had sanctified by his rest. What does that mean? First, it was not instituted, but then it says in the very next breath, the day which he sanctified by his rest. Oh, well, then it, it was instituted then, wasn't it? Origin of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is first met with in connection with the fall of the manna. Catholic Encyclopedia says that, so therefore it must be so. Is that true? Is that what we read in Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2? The Sabbath is first encountered, first met with in connection with the fall of the manna but it appears there as an institution already known to the Israelites. The Sinaitic legislation, therefore, only gave the force of law to an existing custom. Interesting. The origin of this custom is involved in obscurity. Well, it is now because they just said so. So now it's obscure, right? Obscurity, you think the word obscurity, cloudy, dark. It was not borrowed from the Egyptians, as the week of seven days closing with a day of rest was unknown to them. In recent years, a Babylonian origin has been advocated. Interesting. Very quickly in the Catholic Encyclopedia, they insert the subtle idea that the Jews probably got the idea about Sabbath-keeping from the Babylonians. A tablet gives Shabbatu as the equivalent of Um Nu Libi, or the day of the appeasement of the heart of the gods. Furthermore, a religious calendar of the intercalary month Elul and of the month Marchesban mentions the 7th, 14th, 21st, 28th, and 19th days, the latter probably because it was the 49th Seven by seven days from the beginning of the preceding month as the days on which the king, the magician, and the physician were to abstain from certain acts. By the time you read this far, your head is spinning with all these old historical references to an ancient old clay tablet found in Nippur or someplace about the Babylonians and a custom of relaxing on a certain day of the week, didn't matter which day, in honor of their pagan gods. Quote, A Babylonian origin is not in itself improbable since Chaldea was the original home of the Hebrews." Is that right? Was Chaldea the home of the Hebrews? You think Chaldea was the home of the Hebrews? Anybody in this room thinks Chaldea was the home of the Hebrews? Well, I guess they're just saying since apparently the time of Eber. After that time, prior to the call of Abraham, a man named Eber lived up in that area somewhere But actually, the cradle that gave birth to the Israelitish nation and the eponymous ancestors of the Twelve Tribes was Egypt, was it not? And not Babylon at all. So here are total conflicts. The Sabbath in the New Testament, Christ, while observing the Sabbath, ah, they told the truth at last, Christ, while observing the Sabbath, set himself in word and act against this absurd rigorism which made man a slave of the day. Subtle? True, as far as it goes, but subtle. Because of the abuses of Judaism and the abuses of the added do's and uh, don'ts of the Talmud, Christ reproved all of them for putting a burden on men's shoulders and making the Sabbath into an intolerable burden. That's true. But it was not the Sabbath that Christ addressed. But the burdens placed upon people by men, by man-made religionists, Then they quote, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, Mark 2.27. Then he says this, this is enormous. St. Paul enumerates the Sabbath among the Jewish observances which are not obligatory on Christians. And as you might expect, he quotes Colossians 2.16, Galatians 4.9 and 10, Romans 14.5, all of which will be covered in great detail in the booklet. The Gentile converts held their religious meetings on Sunday, scriptures, Acts 27, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Oh good, we've done it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have just proved it. We are now going to find in the Bible, in the word of God, from this eminent authority of the Catholic Encyclopedia, the proof that quote the Gentile converts held their religious meetings on Sunday, Acts 20 and verse 7. Let's turn to that and find Gentile converts Holding a Christian meeting on Sunday, Acts 20 and verse 7. This is also covered in my booklet Saturday, Sunday which and will be covered in great detail in the booklet coming up. We better read from verse 6 because they are traveling along with a group of people named in verse 4, Sulpiter and Aristarchus and Segundus, Gaius, Tychicus and Trophimus, who went before Paul and the others to Troas, and he says, We sailed away from Philippi after the Days of Unleavened Bread. Uh Uh-oh, now there we have a problem. Uh, Here is Luke the chronologer mentioning the Days of Unleavened Bread that the Catholic Church doesn't keep, the Methodist Church doesn't keep, the Lutheran Church doesn't keep, and no other Sunday-keeping church keeps but it's in the word of God. The Bible is a part of the custom and the practice, and even the chronologers keeping track of what season of the year it was, by the observance of the days of unleavened bread. In five days where we abode seven days, and upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. What does that mean, came together to break bread? They certainly did come together, and it said they broke bread. Well, verse 11 might be a clue. When he therefore was come up again, and had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till the break of day, so he departed. Well, when you break bread, when I go to a restaurant and they give me a loaf of bread, maybe French bread, I break it in order to eat it. Now, is this really a religious service? On the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, well, so far to eat a meal, that's fine, Paul preached unto them. Yes, he did. He preached unto them ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber, and then one young man fell down, and then it shows that he had to go afoot across a peninsula. And in verse 16, Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. You've got to look at that in connection with all the other scriptures in the book of Acts of the apostle Paul observing the Sabbath, teaching the Gentiles to observe the Sabbath. Look at the context very carefully and ask yourself, was this an authorized Sunday meeting, and is it authorization for discarding everything else from Genesis to Revelation in the word of God about the Sabbath day? It was not, but it was a meal. And Paul preaching and teaching to people because he was journeying, and he did that on any given day of the week. Notice the book of Revelation, where he says in Revelation 1 and verse 10, well, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, first, let's take it in order, 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. I have seen this quotation on the backs of little envelopes in church pews, where people come around with a basket to take up the collection. And they print this right on the back of the envelope. But let's look at the context where the apostle Paul is writing about a collection for the saints. There was a drought on in Palestine. He was urging other people to take up a collection. As I have given orders. so the churches of Galatia, of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, so do you. Take up a collection. Now, they were collecting food because the people were hungry. And those days, of course, they didn't use perishables in the way that we do. They had no refrigeration, etc. So you're talking basically about grains, dried fruits. Uh, dried meats and so on, things that would be preserved and could be kept for a period of time. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. What kind of gatherings? Well, prunes, uh, grapes to dry into dates, uh, wheat, barley, meat to be, as they say, jerked or hung in strips in the sun, and you go out and you gather from your land, because they were an agrarian society. And the gathering was the gathering of foodstuffs. So he's saying on the first day of the week, which is of course the first work day, let every one of you take that day, not the next day or the next day or the next day when you are laboring for your family and for yourself, but set aside that day to work by gathering foodstuffs, by harvesting grain and so on, and keep it, lay by, it in, lay by yourself in store, According as God has blessed your land, so that when I come, there be no gatherings. And when I come, whomsoever you shall approve by your letters, then will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. And verse 8 again, but I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. Again he mentions one of the annual holy days. There's no authorization there. Does anybody in his right mind in this room, in reading the English of that verse, think that this was some call to worship on Sunday? That Paul is saying, let everybody give an offering on Sunday? When you lay by yourself in store, you put something by yourself, and you store it. You keep it. You don't put a bill into a basket. This is not talking about a Sunday meeting. Revelation, the first chapter in the tenth verse, is the only other one they quote. And they don't even quote that, by the way. I'm going beyond what it says here in this particular scripture. They only give the two that we've looked at. But elsewhere in the article under Sunday, they do. Verse ten. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now, if you just pick that out of context and read that and go away thinking, wasn't it wonderful? He was in a spiritual mood, he was in a religious attitude, and it was on the Lord's day. But if you look at the context, and then if you look at all of the other versions, if you look at the original, even the word in that means into, among, or during, and you look at the book of Revelation. Then you understand, as do all of the other sources, including the Diagloth, and the most ancient of the polyglots, and the original text, and all the other verses, I was in the spirit that is a vision, a spiritual frame of mind, God transporting me from my surroundings in my own observation with my eyes into a visionary mood, into or on or during The day of the Lord, the Lord's day, you can look at the very same identical Greek expression in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 2 when it talks about the day of the Lord and not being afraid as concerning the day of the Lord that it should come except that certain things were to happen first. And heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, and then comes the letters to the seven churches and all the great visions that he has given of the book of Apocalypse, he is setting the theme by saying, I was transported spiritually on into the future, into a time called the day of the Lord. It is incredible to me that minds that had a certain anti-Semitic bias, an anti-Jewish bias, that desired so desperately to prove what I said at the beginning of this message, Sunday observance and to get it somehow to be authorized by the Bible, could take these texts and so twist them and rest them and distort them that they come up with some justification for Sunday keeping. Real quickly, another version out of the article on Sunday, and I won't read much because I want to quit right away. The article Sunday from the Catholic Encyclopedia says this, Sunday was the first day of the week according to the Jewish method of reckoning, but for Christians it began to take the place of the Jewish Sabbath in apostolic times as the day set apart for the public and solemn worship of God. The practice of meeting together on the first day of the week for the celebration of the Eucharistic sacrifice is indicated in Acts 20 verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16:2, is First Corinthians 16, 2 a meeting together of apostolic Christians for the Eucharist? Is that what you just read? In Apocalypse 1, 10, we just read it. It is called the Lord's Day. I'm sorry. I want to believe in Sunday. I want to believe in Sunday. I wish I could. If somebody would just give me some real proof so that I could say it's based upon the Bible, the Word of God. But I've given you the best there is. I don't know of any better authorities than the Catholic Encyclopedia, because they're before all the Protestants. They gave birth to all the Protestants. And you have now shared with me the best proofs they have got to offer. Which is it going to be? The Bible, the Word of God, or the Catholic Encyclopedia?